So welcome everyone. Thanks for uh, joining me tonight. Uh, thanks Brent for putting this together and also uh, Lama Karma back there, who's my buddy, who um, also is a teacher here in Knoxville. Um, so let's see, I think what we're gonna do is sit for a bit and just meditate for maybe 20 minutes or 30 minutes and I'll guide this partially and then also leave some space uh, for just silent meditation. Then we'll move into tonight's topic a little bit. So just finding a posture that's alert yet relaxed. We're just going to spend a moment coming into the body. So if you tend to just sit right down and find your breath right away, just join me in maybe a little preliminary practice we're going to work with first. So feel free to close your eyes and we're just going to do a brief body scan together, just connecting with the body and releasing and relaxing any tension throughout the body. Starting at the crown of the head, just gently moving down into our forehead and eyes, relaxing the muscles around the eyes, into our cheeks and jaw. Down through our neck into our shoulders and feel free to roll your shoulders back and forth if you like or just gently lift them up towards your ears and drop them down again. Just letting everything come to rest and relax. Moving down our arms into our hands, just releasing our fingers and feeling our chest, our midsection. And some people do hold tension in the abdomen, so just letting any tension there also come to rest. And then moving into our hips and sit bones, into our legs, knees, and finally just connecting with your feet and calves as they touch the cushion beneath you or the ground beneath you. Just be for a moment with that presence, touching in with the earth. For me, I'm so thankful and grateful to have the opportunity to come to Knoxville in Tennessee, just to get out of New York City and into the forest, into the ground a little bit. I got to spend last night close to the Smokies. But here, the earth is always available to us, the earth we walk on, the earth we share with all others. Just connect with it for a moment, just honoring that. Just letting your attention and awareness just feel that presence, feel that support. And here we're gonna form just a very gentle intention for our practice. In Buddhist teachings, intention is a big deal. We say that where we place our intention is where our practice moves, where our mind moves, where our actions of body, speech, and mind move. So we're going to cultivate what I call a rooted intention, rooted down through the earth, and remembering we are not a world of one, remembering all of those who walk this earth with us, whether we know them personally, whether we care for them or not. 
Just briefly refle reflecting that just as we ourselves wish for <coughs> happiness and wish to avoid pain, so do all others. So if you can gently include all beings within your heart for tonight, especially for our sit right now, just let that happen in connection with the earth, in connection with the ground. So we sit for our own personal growth and awakening, as well as the growth, compassion, and love that we come into connection with, with others, that we provide to others. So basically, the idea that through our practice and study of meditation and Buddhism, may we become a light for others more and more. So from here, we're just going to connect with the natural flow of the body. So what this means is, just let your awareness continue to rest in the body, either the body as a whole, kind of just scanning throughout it very slowly, or just a certain place in the body that might be grounding for you, like the feet touching the earth, or maybe the area in your midsection around your belly button. That's a very grounding place for me. Or usually when I do this practice, I'm just having a very light, watchfulness over the entire body. But here we're letting everything come to relax and be at ease. So let yourself just drop all tension. Drop any lingering tightness, either it be muscular or just emotional. Just connect with what's there, whatever mood, whatever emotion, whether it's something comfortable or uncomfortable. We just let the natural flow of the body take place, the natural flow of the feeling world take place. And we're just going to be with that, which means feel it. There's a very light awareness here, not too tight, not too loose. We're just opening up and feeling the nature of the body. Just let be in a relaxed way. We're not spacing out, but we're also not holding our experience so tightly, just bearing witness to it. Even if it's something as simple as just the sensation of your 
feet touching the ground. Or if you're a little sleepy, just being with that sleepiness. You don't have to push it away. You don't have to try to bring in something else. So tonight we're going to be focusing mainly on compassion and resilience, uh, an approach to that from the Buddhist path perspective. One thing I'll be talking about that's related to the practice we're doing now is that resilience often seems like we have to reach outside of ourselves to get that resilience, to get that freedom or movement from a difficulty or a challenge. But within this practice we're doing right now, which is going to be part of the theme of tonight, we're just letting be. We're actually not doing anything. We're just bearing witness, just coming to rest, giving ourselves permission to relax, and just be. And sometimes over the course of this meditation, if we apply it often, resilience is, is found within just letting be, letting go. Instead of holding on so tightly, we just find a little bit of freedom in letting loose and letting be. But there's awareness. Awareness is that piece of the magic that allows for this inner transformation to take place, for this inner true rest and calm to come. So here we don't have to fight the thinking mind for that calm. Just let the thinking mind be what it is. Let it flow naturally. But just like the great Zen master Suzuki Roshi said, where when we meditate, we leave all of our windows and doors open. Anything can come inside, but we just don't serve them tea. It's very similar to how we treat our thoughts here. Just let them come and go. If you get stuck, no worries. Just come back to the body and feel. whether we're new to meditation practice or we've been doing it for quite a while, the first step is to know how to let be and relax in the body. If we know how to do that, the practice actually becomes quite straightforward and easy. It's just a matter of then sustaining that calmness or connecting with the aware, awake nature of mind. 
or often what we say is just this presence we can have within the mind, an ability or a type of knowingness. So having come into the body this way, if you found a sense of ease and calm, just simply start to connect with the present side of this, meaning a type of awareness, a type of knowing, which is non-physical, but it's connected to the body. So you're welcome to continue to keep your eyes closed if you like, but I like to open my eyes at this point, either halfway or fully open, just looking about four feet in front of me. And what this does is to help counter sleepiness and lethargy as we start to connect with the clear aspect of the mind, its ability to know, to be present, to be aware. And we're going to use the breath as an anchor or object to connect us into this present moment awareness. So it's the awareness we're developing, but we're going to use the breath as an object for cultivating that awareness. So you can, st you can continue to stay with this calm in the body, but now we're going to add in the breath and bearing witness to that breath. As we breathe in slowly through the nose and out slowly. And if you can, see if you can breathe real deep into your abdomen, really filling it like a balloon, slowly and gently, and then exhaling. You can also place one hand on your abdomen and just watch the sensation. Just pay attention to that feeling of the breath in the body. So if you lose the relaxation and calm at any point, just come back to the body and feel. You may also need to just tone back the effort a little bit. But now, based off of the calmness in the body, we're sustaining a type of presence in the mind, a type of awareness and knowing. And we're connecting that to the breath, so we just simply bear witness to the breath. Let it come, let it go. You can either pay attention to the sensation of the breath of the belly or at the tip of the nose. Or if you're new to meditation, it can be helpful to count. Counting each inhalation and exhalation up to 10 and back down again. So now we're working that muscle of awareness. We're cultivating our resilience through presence.
And so our job here is just to sustain that calm, clear presence. Just connecting to each moment of now, again and again. It's not pushy. It's not sleepy. It's just right. Like I often think of the, when I was a kid, remember the story of the three bears and the porridge. One was too hot, one was too cold. One's just right. So we find that space of not too tight and not too loose, which is often moving a moving target for us. So we have to stay on our toes. And we just cultivate that, the breath as our anchor. And so we'll practice like this for about 10 minutes.
So um, if you'll allow me to, uh, what I usually like to do before I give talks is to call in my mentors and benefactors uh, into the environment and space. And so this is a traditional thing um, that we usually do uh, on the Buddhist, in, in Buddhist teachings. Um, and uh, I find it useful because often we have these sort of uh, mundane environments we're in, myself included, <laughs> very much so. And so um, sort of uplifting that and creating a space where we come into this intention uh, again that, that we formed in the beginning where uh, it's not just about me, it's about sort of how this practice connects us into the world and how we can all show up in the world uh, with more compassion, uh, more love. So I'm going to recite something in Sanskrit, and uh, you can just close your eyes if you'd like, or twiddle your thumbs, whatever you want to do. Namu Buddhaya Namu Dharmaya Namu Sangaya Namo Buddhaya Namo Dharmaya Namo Sangaya Namo Buddhaya Namo Dharmaya Namo Okay, thanks so much. So, so what I thought is we, we have about an hour and a half left and um, I'm going to uh, present my thesis on <laughs> compassion and resilience or some ideas or thoughts about it. And then um, I'd like to leave plenty of time for Q&A and sort of discussions just to see what's up for you guys and where this stuff is meeting you or not meeting you. Uh, the way I teach meditation and, and anything related to Buddhism is um, very much in line with, with this very famous quote of the Buddha, often overused these days, uh, where he, he basically said, whenever we're, we're, we're studying uh, Buddha Dharma, uh, Dharma mean, meaning that the teachings that actually liberate or, or bring ultimate happiness, we really want to check it like gold, right? So this means, uh, he used this example of, I've never mined for gold, so I don't know, so some, maybe some of you know, but apparently uh, you have to burn it, rub it, you know, wash it, all this kind of stuff to make sure that it's uh, actually gold and not fake gold, right? So the Buddha's actually uh, not only, uh, he's kind of like supplicating us or he requested us, please teach, uh, please uh, treat my teachings like that, which is mean, meaning we don't take them on face value, right? Meaning uh, here with me tonight, bring your doubts, bring your uh, 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 skepticism, whatever you've got, it's all there, as long as we are able to keep it within a space of an open question, right? So an open question means we don't have an answer, we just leave it there and we analyze, right? So the moment we close the door on something, we close ourselves off to another possibility, right? 
And this is kind of, in one way we could say, this is life. We have beliefs and some of those beliefs are more firm than others and our beliefs often change throughout life, right? And I'm not talking about religious beliefs, just, just the belief that um, we're gonna go home and do whatever we do, right? That's also a type of belief, even though we don't normally think about it like that. So in this context, when we're studying uh, this kind of material or when we're just uh, reflecting on and meditating on it, uh, it's really about churning this material, right? And so I just want to welcome all of you to that. That's totally welcome. I actually want to encourage it because that's where we really learn, right? And that's where this becomes real for us. So compassion, as you, I don't know, some of you maybe studied the uh, Buddhism a little bit before. Um, resilience is not, uh, I haven't seen a Sanskrit <laughs> equivalent to the word, meaning it's not really a traditional word to Buddhism. Um, I've been using it in some of my talks, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a nice word to use, I think, and I've been using it because it's a great word, because it's, it's our response. Uh, it's our ability to find uh, transformation or, or to move through a deep challenge or struggle, right? And in a sense, we, we, don't, really, we don't really have anything else, because as we move through life, it's one struggle to another, to another, to another until we have the biggest struggle of our life, which is dying, right, often. Not saying it has to be a struggle, but we're leaving this body. So it's a big deal, right? We're leaving everything we've ever identified with in this kind of incarnation, right? So Buddhism, you know, uh, I think does have an approach to resilience, and there's many different approaches to resilience. There's not one, right? So I'm gonna to try to present a few maybe ideas here uh, so it kind of can relate to the variety of people we have in the room. One thing is that resilience uh, in the common sense is just our ability to... <laughs> that meditation must have really worked. <laughs> so. <laughs> so the resilience is just our, our ability to have emotional well-being, right? So we're going to talk about that a little bit tonight. But the Buddhist path doesn't stop there, because even when we have this uh, a type of emotional well-being or contentment, um, we still have this pervasiveness of dukkha, right? So some of you know the, the term dukkha? Anybody? Yeah? Okay. So I'll explain it. A few people <laughs> nod their heads. So dukkha, uh, the Pali word... It has to be unpacked, and I'm not going to be able to. I'm not going to unpack it completely tonight because it's a, it's a big term that encapsulates a lot. It 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 often gets mistaken as just the more grosser level pain that we experience. So that's also included within dukkha, but like you know, sickness, having a shitty day, you know, not feeling good, uh, uh, being a little down, depressed. That is included within dukkha, right? But there's also much more included within than I like to talk about. But before I talk about that, um, one thing that has been extremely help from, helpful for me, which I'd like to share with you, and where we start from the Buddhist path is quite different than where a lot of us have maybe um, uh, our view of religion or our view of spirituality, which is often, you know, I, I could speak for myself, and then you can see if this resonates with you maybe, that I'm somehow this screwed up person who needs to improve, right? And then I need something to do that, be it you know, drugs or alcohol, uh, meditation, massage, acupuncture, 
whatever, therapy, you know, th th you name it, right? We have all these, and some of obviously drugs and alcohol are in the category of not so skillful, right? And probably you're not going to get much resilience from them, as you know, some of you know. So, um, so Buddhism is quite different as the, the premise or the base is that we are not a self-improvement project. And I'm going to say that again. The premise is that we are not a self-improvement project. For me, this is incredibly liberating. It actually took me years of practice and study just to realize the profundity in, 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 this, in that statement and in the, the teaching itself. And essentially, these are connected to teachings on what we call Buddha nature. But what's interesting is you don't have to be Buddhist to have Buddha nature, right? We're just talking about a fundamental uh, goodness inside every single being that's there no matter what, no matter what they've done, no matter how they've treated themselves or they've treated another, no matter if they're an extremely kind, amazingly altruistic person or a really awful, <laughs> you know, greedy person, that nature is still there. That inner basic goodness is still there. So this is, I think, quite revolutionary because often when we approach the Buddhist path and we've been steeped in sort of you know, other types of uh, uh, religious, spiritual perspectives, not saying they're, they're bad, just, just saying there's a difference, or other cultural perspectives or secular perspectives, is that we bring this idea again. You have to look inside. Am I bringing this idea that I'm somehow screwed up and I have to get better or I have to fix myself, right? And the Buddhist path is really saying, no, there's nothing to fix here, yet there's still some work to do, right? Because obviously we're not experiencing this, this basic goodness all the time. We experience it often in small moments, uh, really unexpected, and we usually don't notice it. We don't notice when it's happening because it's very subtle. But it's there. And so within this, there's a profundity and, and, a, and a real skill to this. Because what it's showing and what it's intimating is that when we meditate, for instance, when we just meditated now, some of you probably saw that thoughts and emotions settle. Some of you probably saw that um, an upliftedness starts to come in your body and mind. This is connected to this basic goodness, showing that our disturbing thoughts, our disturbing emotions are actually extraneous to the nature of who we are, right? So that's another way to put this. Because we see when we actually meditate, when we sit, when we you know, a good example we often use is like a, if we have a glass full of muddy water. If we just put the muddy water down, everything floats to the bottom eventually and the clarity of the water starts to come out. So that's because the clarity of the water is our nature, right? Is part of this basic goodness, our Buddha nature. So what it's also saying is no one whatsoever is excluded from uh, awakening or from being a fully awake, fully free, fully, we could say, like, happy, content person or individual, right? And why? Again, because of the Buddha nature, but another way we could say it is because we all have a mind, and that mind can become aware of itself. That mind can uh, become what we call self-luminous. So this is one of the utterances of the Buddha as he attained awakening. Uh, he described his experience as, as beyond constructs, luminous. Yeah, so there's this kind of self-luminosity to the experience. Now, luminosity is a tough word. It's more a term coming from the, from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. But it really is describing um, the very nature of our experience, right? 
beyond just all of the upheavals and disturbing emotions we experience. So I find this to be incredibly good news. I don't know. I don't know. Is it good news to you guys or bad news? Yeah. yeah. It's good news, right? And it's good news because if it's our nature, it's simply a matter of having some kind of means or path to uncover that, right? It's just simply that. Putting in, uh, the pra putting in time, putting in practice, and uncovering that more and more. So the path of practice, or we say the dharma that we apply, the teaching or the practice we apply, is to awaken to that very thing which is our nature, right? So it's almost like a, a, a blindfold that we have to remove over time, getting more clarity. But again, I don't think you have to be a super developed practitioner to start to see the relevance of this. Because like I said, if you just notice what happens when your mind settles, what is that? What is that experience, right? There's more spaciousness there. There's a little bit more freedom. There's not as much tension and, and uh, 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 toughness in the experience. So right there it shows there's something else to our experience as a human being, right? So I like to give the good news first, but the bad news, <laughs> of course, is coming. <laughs> And this is our current predicament we're in, right? Related to this term dukkha, right? So I would say we all long for peace. I don't think there's, there's any of us who, who, who doesn't, even people who do awful things. I think they're, they're often longing for peace in some sort of twisted way. Um, but a lot of times our, our efforts to find peace are, are thwarted, right? I mean, for myself, I, I got a pretty mean sugar addiction. And, uh, and, you know, I know it doesn't make me feel good to eat a bunch of sugar, right? Uh, I know now when I take a break from it, but I still, you know, fall into the extreme of eating too much sugar or, or my addiction to it or, or my attachment to it, right, and getting caught up. So this is part of our predicament. And there's a wonderful example I, I heard around this because it relates to the predicament and the nature I'm talking about, right? Because we have this nature which is open and free and spacious, that's our underlying nature. But yet on top of it, we could almost say like the dirt that gets caked onto a window, right? It's not the window. It's extraneous to the window. It's the dirt. But it's our experience where we you know, have disturbing emotions that come up. Uh, crappy things happen. We get sick, right? Um, we go through pain and suffering. But um, this example, I, li I like merging these. I heard this recently because I, I never knew this because I never grew up. I grew up sort of close to the ocean, but I was never a fisherman or anything. But apparently, um, mussel farming <laughs> is something where they, they'll lay all these lines out, or rope, right? And then they plant the, I guess, the, the baby mussel or the, the egg of the mussel on the rope. And then they, they put them out in the ocean, like somewhere, like I was teaching in Seattle before, and I think they, um, they do this there. So they'll put, like I guess, big kind of like docks or some kind of, boards, does anybody know? Or like cases or some kind of wood frame and then ropes and then these, these seeds or, or eggs of mussel. They put them out there to grow in the water, right? And the, mussel, the mussels grow over time and get bigger and then, you know, the mussel farmers just pull them in and take them off the rope, right? <laughs> but what's so interesting, and, and this was the most interesting part, I thought this is the perfect analogy for my life <laughs> and maybe yours too, I'm not sure. The, the, the muscle at any point, it can let go. It's not, it's not forced to be on that rope. There's a big, big, wide open, uh, wide open uh, ocean right there. But it doesn't, it doesn't release. 
And so the farmer doesn't have to create some other mechanism to catch it. It just stays on that rope, right? And gets eaten, <laughs> so, you know, unfortunately, for it, for the muscle. So I thought, wow, that sounds a lot like my life, right? You know, you know, these, these moments of spaciousness that, that we can connect into in meditation are often not, not lasting because, you know, of course, we need to put in more time on the cushion and more effort and sometimes different approaches. But it's really like that. We, from this perspective, it's like this wide open ocean that's completely available all the time to us. We just are simply too stuck on that rope and we don't want to let go, right? So the path of meditation here is really about learning to let go. That's what it's about. If, if, if I want to sum all of this up as one thing without getting too philosophical, it's about learning to let go. And that learning is not just a cognitive thing. It's an experiential thing that we develop, right, over time. So what, another way to think about this is, I often think of this rope as the things I seek reliability in, right? What I'm looking to and what I'm looking for, uh, yeah, what I'm looking to, to find that reliability, to find some kind of ground where I can stand and it's not gonna move. But the issue is the ground always moves, right? It's impermanent, it changes. You know, we place our, our hope in a certain uh, experience, in a certain person, a certain job, a certain food. I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm on a new diet regime now, so I'm always placing it in some new <laughs> diet regime. But then things shift, things change, right? And of course, if we're flexible with that change, then I think there's less suffering, there's less problem. But how much suffering just comes about through uh, hope and fear? And when that ground does shift, when it does change, we want it back. Right? And we're struggling because we're clean. Right? So the first teaching of the Buddha on the, in the First Noble Truth, basically on dukkha or, or to know suffering, but suffering isn't really a great translation of this because you can see now it includes a lot more than just pain and suffering right? from, a, from, a, from the English uh, definition of the word. So the Buddha really asked us to look, look towards dukkha, right? Not just the gross uh, pain and dissatisfaction in our life, but really this aspect of where are we clinging to this rope? And how do we learn how to let go and swim in this giant ocean, right? Which is our nature. So this is essentially the question, the first question the Buddha asked, right? Um, I don't think it's something to be glossed over. I think, I think it's, uh, I think it's uh, something I'm, after 20 years of study and practice, I'm not bored of and I'm not sick of, just churning again and again where this shows up in my life. And usually we have three ways of talking uh, how this shows up. One way is in the, in the more obvious ones, uh, like uh, raw emotions, painful emotions, challenging emotions, birth, old age, sickness and death, what we call the four rivers in Buddhism. Just again, the more grosser dissatisfaction and suffering we can experience. Then the second type, is in the very clinging that happens when something changes or shifts and we weren't expecting that shift or we weren't expecting that change. And this could be really subtle in like, uh, I'm pretty, I'm enjoying this right now. I mean, my body feels pretty good just sitting here with you. But you know, if we sit here for another three or four hours, my knees and hips and everything are gonna ache and I'm gonna need to get up, right? So it's questioning here when we start to reflect on this, whether the pleasure I was experiencing is actual pleasure. The pleasure now, right, of sitting and enjoying, whether it's actual pleasure. 
Now, again, this isn't a question that has to become also, uh, mm, what's the word? Pessimistic. It's not about pessimism. It's just coming into how is reality functioning? How is our reality functioning? Because unless we're able to really diagnose the problem quite well for ourselves, how are we going to take the, how are we going to you know, find any medicine or even want to take the medicine? Someone says, okay, take this medicine. Here's the Dharma. Take this, right? I'm not sick. I don't need that. Go give it to my neighbor, you know? He's kind of, he, he needs it, I think. <laughs> right? So, so uh, unless we've done our investigation quite well, it, basically meditation and the teaching won't take us that far. It may like produce a little bit of relaxation, and that's fine, and that might be useful to us in the beginning, but it won't produce uh, this aspect where we can learn to let go of the rope. It may over time, but again, we have to reflect. So, so ultimately, uh, through, this, through this kind of um, churning and this kind of investigation that we're doing that's ongoing, um, what we're trying to produce is some kind of shift, some kind of profound shift in how we're relating to ourselves, to our mind, our emotions, our body, and how we're relating to others, our relationships in the world around us, right? And of course, this shift for a meditation practitioner often happens slowly, so sometimes we can get discouraged because it seems like, oh, why is this taking so long? Or I don't feel like <laughs> this is working on me, right? But it probably is working, it's just slow, and, and it takes time, right? But again, what we're looking for is this shift. And so, this is essentially what, uh, what I'm going to frame resilience in from a Buddhist perspective. Now, there's kind of short-term resilience of, like, like I said, we just finding more well-being and ease in the body, finding some contentment uh, around disturbing and challenging emotions, and we'll do a practice on that a bit later. But the much wider view is what I just explained, that we're trying to unhook or, or let loose from the entire rope of clinging itself, the entire rope or construct of how we're forming our identity, right? And it doesn't mean because there's something wrong with our identity or we need to change that identity for a Buddha identity or something like that or go around wearing robes and lighting incense, you know? There's a purpose to that, but the point is not in creating another identity, right? That's, the point. That, that's what I'm trying to say. So we need to have this shift where then we move into a type of identitylessness, but not a groundlessness. There's still a ground. There's still a place that we can call home, but that home is here, that home's inside. That home is real, true resilience, right? So I just want to give you this, this taste first for those of you who are kind of uh, maybe interested in taking this deeper and you, and you really want to, uh, uh, you're interested in Buddhism and you want to <coughs> move into that, because this is really what we're talking about. Uh, essentially. And one reason we can say is that this very thing of, you know, this example of being uh, clinging to a rope and not, not noticing the wide, o wide ocean or wide open space around us, unless we're dealing with that kind of thing, we're still stuck in this always this kind of paradigm of a problem and solution. So this is, I think, one of our fundamental issues we really struggle with as human beings. And there's a lot of fear and hope and, you know, disappointment around this, where there's a problem we're trying to remedy, right? There's, I'm sure there's a reason all of you are here within the, in this room tonight, individual reasons, some that are in common. And then we put some type of solution, right, to solve that problem. But the solution also creates another problem, 
So we're in this predicament of going around in, in kind of a circle like this and kind of spinning. So really what we're looking for in awakening, what we're looking for in letting go of this rope and letting go into this vast white space of our own nature is it goes beyond a problem and solution, right? That's essentially what we're looking for. And that, I don't think you, you, you in my investigation, and again, just, just offering it up, you can disagree with me and we can, we can talk about it too, we can dialogue about it. Um, I haven't seen that in like a, a psychological model or something like that, because the psychological model is about how, find, how we find temporary resilience. But that temporary resilience will change, right? So it's still the solution that will create another problem. Maybe a, maybe a lesser problem, so that would be a good thing, right? So anyways, but, uh, but again, it's a bit tricky because often all we have is sort of temporary solutions. And actually the Buddhist path, what it is, is a bunch of, it's a lot of temporary solutions leading to an ultimate solution that goes beyond the solution. So it's a bit tricky. So anyways, maybe I'm confusing people, so I'm gonna stop there with that. Um, but essentially, uh, uh, this is the larger resilience. Now how do we even start that? Because even this idea, you know, I'm supposedly supposed to understand this stuff as I'm teaching it, but even this idea of like, when I think of that muscle, you know, like a cartoon muscle, like a Disney movie, letting go and oh, like being free in the ocean, you know? There's something that scares me a little bit. Does that scare you a little bit? There's like a feeling of, whoa, I don't know what that would, I mean, there's a freedom there, so it feels good. But at the same time, um, it's a little scary. It's a little like, what does that mean, you know? What am I then? <laughs> you know, what is this? What's my experience? So we need to start with some steps and we need to start with some stages. And so the main uh, uh, practice we're going to work with is, is Buddhist uh, practices of awareness and compassion tonight and talking mostly about that and finding resilience through those. Yeah. So compassion from a Buddhist perspective is, you know, often we mix up love and compassion as terms. I've noticed uh, culturally, I, I don't know why, because they're defined pretty clearly in English. So I don't know what happens. Maybe it's just like in popular culture, they get kind of mixed up a little bit. But compassion is a little more difficult than, than, a, than a feeling of love, uh, either for herself or another. Because compassion involves actually bearing witness to something that's not pleasurable, that's something that's actually painful. And it's a type of bearing witness where we're not getting uh, hijacked into that, but rather we're bearing witness and wishing freedom from that suffering, right? Or, or intending to have some kind of shift from that, yeah? And so, uh, so here, it, it, classically, we define it as an, insp uh, an aspiration um, and an act for freedom from dukkha. Uh, all this dukkha I was talking about earlier, what this term means. Really a bearing witness and looking towards, right? So compassion very much is, a, is, in, is engaged in the sense that it is willing to look towards in order to find freedom. So this is a bit uh, also kind of, I think, uh, scary and provocative a little bit. Because most of us have the idea that, hey, something's burning, I'm not running towards it, I'm running away, right? And often we just spend our life running away, running away, running away, running away. I know for myself, I'm an expert avoider. <laughs> I, get, I, get a, I get a gold star in avoidance uh, from my emotions <laughs> or suppression, right? So. Compassion rather here, you know, as a starting place, rather than a principle that we're going to apply to others first, 
Tonight we're going to be mostly talking about how to apply that to ourselves, how to apply that to our own bodies, our own emotions, and then how that can start to move out towards others. I'm sure uh, a majority of us in the room, we have some sense of, of an inherent compassion, a sense of uh, compassion in our communities, in our workplaces, our families, and those uh, we work with. Um, but at the same time, we can often cut ourselves off from compassion. Sometimes we uh, are willing to give it, but it's hard to receive, right? It's hard to provide that for ourselves because it's uncomfortable, right? So what I'd like to do now is just lead us in a, in a brief practice on, uh, on a compassionate presence to feelings, and then we'll go from there, and maybe I'll do some Q&A from there. Do you guys need a little stretch break or anything? Are you, are you doing okay? Yeah? All right, so just finding a relaxed yet alert posture. Just let your attention and awareness just begin to connect with the body once again. And if you're someone who finds it hard to connect with the body, just connect with a part of the body, like the feet or legs touching the ground beneath you. Or you can place one hand on your abdomen or on your chest and just connect with that. Connect with that sensation. And from here, we're just going to bear witness directly to our entire feeling world, which means anything that's a sensation physical sensation, a mood or emotion, an inner sensation like an energy moving through the body. Or anything related to the flow of sensation within the body. And we're just going to meet that in the body. Whether it's something that's pleasant, unpleasant, Whether we know what it is or don't, just let your thinking mind drop into the body and feel. And for some of us, this takes real courage and guts. As what we may be feeling in our body right now may not be pleasant. So I just want to honor that for you, that this is not easy. But this is our chance. We're a muscle on a rope. <laughs> this is our chance to touch that deep, wide, vast ocean. And we touch it through this stepping stone of compassion, a compassion of presence to the feeling world. So really the practice here is really simple. It's not so complicated. We just bear witness. And there's four principles we're going to try to apply, which are whatever comes up for us during the practice, whatever we feel, whatever we connect with, 
we're going to try our best not to suppress that. Second, we're going to try our best to stay present with that and not become completely hijacked by it. Hijacked means we're just spun off into ruminating on it with our thoughts. So here we preserve an awareness, present moment, compassion, a bearing witness. And third, we're going to try not to run away from the experience. And fourth, and this is often the most key point and often the most difficult in the beginning, is we're not going to apply some kind of agenda or technique to fix what's happening. So remember what I said earlier, that we're not a self-improvement project? Well, now that theory gets applied. So we're applying it through non-doing. Just letting be, feeling with awareness. Not pushing it away. Not becoming completely engaged in it because we're preserving our awareness and we're not applying some agenda to fix it, including using the thinking mind to figure it out, name it, label it. Labeling practices are great for emotional awareness, but we're not doing that one right now. It's another one. So just feel in the body. And if you don't know what it is, it's okay. You don't have to know what it is. You don't have to name it. Just be with that feeling. Offer it the kindness of non-judgment. Offer it the compassion of your presence. Offer it this aspect of turning towards. So if we've managed to touch in with something that's unpleasant, that's what's up for us right now, just give yourself a lot of space, just with a very gentle friendliness, approaching the feeling. And here as we touch in with that feeling, it's like one hand shaking with the other. But that hand is not manipulating or moving it, it's just being with it. For me, I often think of this practice as being with a small child who just needs my attention. And they might want to play sometimes and engage with me, or they might just want to be silent and do their own thing. But I'm always present, I'm always watching, but I'm not fixing. So can we show up for ourselves and our emotions like this? Can we show up for our world of feeling? Just with a willingness to be curious and sit with it in this way. So rather than thinking <coughs> compassion, we're putting it right into action right now with ourselves and our world of feeling.
So if you're noticing there's maybe not much up for you right now, that's okay, because we're just doing this spontaneously. There may not be a challenging emotion or a sensation that's disturbing. So just let be and let the flow of the body happen, similar to how we did the practice at the beginning of tonight. And as things flow, as they move, as you leave space and allowing for whatever needs to arise to arise, Just be open, be present. If we tend to try to control and fix our emotions, this is really our chance to cultivate a very different stance. We're cultivating more a space of allowing, and we're becoming that ocean, just ready to receive with compassion. Just with the compassion of non-judgment and presence. So we can't force transformation, we can't force a shift, but we can certainly sit with our experience. We can certainly show up for ourselves, maybe with a little bit of a different attitude, different approach. For me, I'm often experiencing some kind of anxiety. I've suffered from anxiety most of my life, as do many of us. So for me, when I often touch into the body in this practice, I just feel a buzz, which is, which I've come to know uh, is that anxiety in the body. And so when I feel that buzz, I just connect with it. What I used to do is try everything to run away from it, try to squash it down, push it away, keep busy. Maybe numb it with drugs and alcohol. But here we're just giving it a chance to exist instead of immediately judging it and putting it into a category of bad. Instead, compassion has a curiosity to it, has a friendliness that's willing to open our bias and minds. That the experience may seem a certain way, but when we look at it from a different angle, there's much more we can learn from it. This happens through resting in the body and feeling the feeling dropping our agendas, just bearing witness through awareness. If you get bored, get bored. It's fine. Feel what that boredom feels like. If you don't know what to feel, just feel the body. Just wait. 
If you're experiencing resistance, fear, just be with that. If you're with some type of feeling, sensation or emotion, and then it shifts into another one, that's fine. Go ahead and be with that one. Like a hermit crab, you're with one sensation and then it sort of cowers back into itself. That's okay, let it do that. You just wait. There's a lot of patience, gentleness, awareness applied here, just bearing witness. Over time, things may shift, but we're not trying to do that shift ourselves. We're not going in there with our tools and working it out. We're just offering space and non-judgment and presence. We have this saying uh, in, or an analogy in, in some Tibetan teachings, uh, sort of, I guess a snake can get tied. I've never seen that before though. But it's like a snake untying itself. So when we just let be like this with our emotions, with the body, with whatever challenges, traumas may be in the body, over time it's like a snake untying itself. It just unties itself by merely offering our presence and the sense of non-doing, but aware. Just stay with the flow of your body for another five or so minutes. The more curiosity you can bring to it, the better. Just the curiosity to be open, bearing witness. Really, essentially, the Buddhist path is about seeing clearly. 
ultimate resilience comes in a full seeing clearly of awakening. But as practitioners on the path, we need lots of stepping stones. And so even in this practice, we're working with a type of seeing clearly, but not through forcing it, not through indulging in it, not through ruminating in thought or investigating or analyzing it, just through letting be with it. And so we touch those very vulnerable spaces within us, the spaces that we may have been running from even our whole life. And we offer the chance that, okay, nothing else really worked that well, so I'm going to give this a shot. And we show up just dipping our toe in the water first, which means just slowly being willing to feel something that is screaming for us to run the other way. And so we're challenging our fight-flight mechanisms here. And so this isn't a pushy practice, it's very gentle. Some of you may already be noticing when emotions, when we're not being aware, when we're not paying attention, they seem so solid and real. We identify so strongly with them. But when we look at them in this way, when we sit with them and allow them to just move, bob and weave as we remain present with them as a feeling, They're so ephemeral, and they change, they move. They're not one thing. So we start to see through the illusion that emotions are true in the sense of how we perceive it in that very moment. We start to see they're much more open-dimensional, they're much more malleable. So this may seem quite simple and easy to understand, but it's actually incredibly special in that it rocks the very foundation of what keeps us hoping on the rope, staying with it. Again, beating our head against the wall again and again, trying the same experiment, trying to get a different result, yet the same result keeps happening. So just before we close an introduction to this practice, just let yourself come out of whatever deeper emotion you may be working with and just coming back to the physical sensation in the body. 
So moving from more subtler feelings back to more grosser feelings. And when I ring the bell and you open your eyes, I want you to just spend a moment connecting with the environment around you in the same manner. See if you can offer this deep sense of presence and allowing. For your practice. I appreciate it. Um, so I'd like to open it up a little bit because I'd like to see what's going on in your heads and what, what's coming up for you. Um, just in relation to any of the material I've been presenting as well as you know whatever's coming up for you within the practice and any questions you might have or just things you want to get out there, put out there. I hope you're not as shy as New Yorkers aren't shy, but when you get them in, I live in New York, so when you get them in a room, they don't want to talk because <laughs> everybody has big like walls they have to walk around with all day long just to survive in that city. So um, I don't think Knoxville is. <laughs> I don't think that that's the case here. Is my guess, at least not to that degree. So please feel free. compassion or to just have. Um, and I just see that as just a definitely an ongoing, I guess, for yourself as well. Yeah. Your own compassion for your yeah. imperfections. And yeah, they're deeply connected. Yeah. I mean, this is a question maybe, you know, maybe that we could bring up to everyone is like, is it really possible to have full, uh, uh, genuine compassion for someone else if we don't have it for ourselves? Uh, that might be a good question, too, yeah. And that's where it would really start. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. How did the practice go for all of you? Yeah? Thank you. What? Thank you. Sure, yeah. I felt very, um, what came, what really resonated with me about the compassion was that I really lived my life feeling that the compassion, to really strive to be compassionate toward other people and really put myself in their shoes. And sometimes I think it's, for myself, it's been a, it's almost led into trouble for myself, my own depression and just feeling badly for other people and their experiences in their life, their life experiences and feeling bad for that person or sad for that person. Which mm -hmm. is, and yet when you then spoke of the self-compassion, I mean, I just, I had like tears come. <coughs> Because I don't feel like I can find it for myself. Yeah. And I just, it was very overwhelming to me. So yeah. I guess 
but it just showed something, a truth about myself I don't think that I was facing. No, and thanks for, for you know, being willing to speak about that in the room. Um, no, that's not, you know, you're not alone in that. I mean, we're all in this boat because, um, I mean, again, I would break the United States up into more than one country, just the amount of different cultures and things we have here. And, but I will say um, our education systems generally, nationally, do not train us in this at all. So we just don't have a clue. So it's not really our fault. Because um, we don't, you know, especially when it comes to emotions, because we just, we don't know what to do with them. You know, I had no idea. I was just like, okay, either I'm going to beat the crap out of this guy when I'm in fifth grade, or I'm going to suppress it. And I'm a nice person, so I didn't want to beat the crap out of him. So I suppressed it and beat the crap out of myself, sort of in the process, right? Um, and yeah, so it could, but, but that's amazing. I mean, that, that shift right there that you had um, is, is, is not uh, small, is what I wanted to say. Yeah, that's big. Um, another piece I wanted to, if it's okay to, to offer it, uh, I wanted to say was, um, you know, this principle of compassion uh, from a Buddhist perspective also relates more, uh, more to just, because a lot of us get pretty overwhelmed these days because just the media is so in our face all the time with, and they make money on bad news. They don't make money on good news, right? So the more bad news they give to us, the better for them, right? The worse for us. Uh, if we consume it a lot, and we don't know how to deal with that overwhelm. So compassion is actually a, a very different flavor because it's not just taking in the suffering, right? Which is actually not so helpful. Um, it's the, the movement to that, that others, ourselves, ourselves, everybody is free from that suffering. So it's like a, it's a movement into an action actually. But for a lot of us in the beginning, it starts with this action of just being able to sit with our own suffering, being able to offer some space for that, that this also exists. Or as my teacher says, um, it's something real, it's happening to us. But what we find out as we sit with the emotions is they're not true. They're not true in the sense of like, okay, I'm this anxious person, right? I'm assuming that, or I'm feeling that. And that's happening to me, but it's not who I am fundamentally, right? And I don't have to identify with that so strongly. So compassion has this, going back to my original point, it has this element of movement, right? Where empathy is really useful for developing compassion, but it can also burn us out. Because it's more staying in that, connecting with the, the pain itself. And then, um, and then eventually we get, you know, if we're, if we're not that strong emotionally, we get caught up in that and then you know, again, we need to be rescued at that point. And I, I will say, um, I do think the people I meet who end up, uh, just because this is connected with refuge recovery, that's the reason I mentioned, I know probably not all of you are in recovery, but um, uh, one of my guesses is, is, is those of us who do end up in recovery, I think we're incredibly empathic people. There's a lot of sensitivity there. And so, um, and again, I, there's a lot of other, you know, of course, issues going on as well uh, with what happens with addiction. But I think there is, there is something, there is a, a gold underneath uh, all the suffering from addiction, which is that, and so sometimes that we have to figure out how to transform that empathy and that sensitivity into compassion, right? Uh, so maybe we can talk more on that. 
just to clarify that and get more, because it, it's a deep thing. Because, I mean, I could describe it intellectually, but really it's a feeling uh, I'm talking about, right? Yeah. <coughs> But this is the start right here, you know? And, and I think the, the compassion we're talking about, it's not some, what I'm talking about in this particular practice, it's not something we have to bring in or do. It's just showing up, right? And we'll, we'll practice more, just so you guys get... Now, now I definitely want to practice more based on the feedback. Because uh, it takes a little while to get the hang of this, and I'd like you all to leave, be able to leave the room feeling like confident you can go take this home and do it. Um, so essentially... We're just showing up, you know, and that's it. And then we're showing up and then watching our habits of suppression, avoidance, fixing, you know, agendas, all that kind of stuff. For me, I'm like a highly kind of intellectual person. So I've talked my way out of lots of emotions, but the emotion didn't go anywhere. It just got more disturbed and pissed off, essentially, because, you know, I wasn't addressing it properly. So yeah, it's very much so a turning towards and a showing up. So that's what I would emphasize for, for you. It's, it's, uh, that is the compassion. It's in the act of non-judgment. It's in. Yeah, to, to face it, yeah. But here we have the tool. We have you know, the tool of awareness. So awareness is an incredible uh, tool. It's something we, again, we're not taught. It's, you know, I don't think... Uh, you know, now they're doing a lot of scientific studies on meditation, so they're finding like where the brain lights up in connection with awareness. For Buddhists, we're kind of like, mm, man, you, didn't, you don't need all that to figure out there's awareness. Just look in your mind, right? But the problem is we get so focused on objective verification here in, in Western culture. But in Buddhism, they have thousands of years of subjective you know, proof of meditators repeating the same thing again and again. So awareness is uh, really, uh, I call it something... Uh, uh, useful to us in the beginning, middle, and end of our practice. For, for a practitioner, as they, they move through all the way until they achieve awakening, their awareness is just developing in different ways. And so awareness allows us to turn towards to see more clearly. So here we start to see clearly with the awareness and connections with emotions because we're bringing that awareness to the feeling and feeling the feeling. And then through not touching it, through not doing anything, it's almost like this... Uh, it's totally not logical, but it works because something shifts, something opens, right? 
So essentially that's the compassion in this particular practice, in this context. Compassion does have different contexts as well, but just the way I'm presenting it now. Yeah. That's it. Keep going. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, you were di- talking about the fight or flight thing earlier. Yeah. And um, for me, my whole life is like I feel like, for example, if I feel depressed, then it consumes me. Mm. Just you know, it consumes me. But um, and when I started doing meditation, it was like feel the feeling. I thought I had to get more depressed, which that makes it worse. Mm. It becomes a monster. Um, not very long ago, um, um, I was feeling what I thought was depressed, and then I went, eh, I think you feel sad. Um, uh, I think you feel lonely, and and. Then I said it out loud. I was like, okay, you feel this. And then I started breathing calmly instead of like, I'm depressed. You know, there you just, go. Yeah. Just, and um, so, so, like, when you're talking about just feel it, it's not like I'm trying to punish myself by fighting it. Yeah. Just come, let it come and then just let it go. Yeah, yeah, and that's. Yeah, because it's otherwise we're we're applying mechanisms on top of it to twist it, and, and it usually just disturbs it more, you know. Because we're and also the thought rumination is one thing that that obviously, I mean now, I guess they are proving somewhat scientifically that thought rumination contributes more to depression. So, so this is a, a really good practice uh, to just drop the thought rumination, drop it right into the body and feel. And once we get good at this, actually, I, I, it took me a while because I'm, again, I'm an incredibly like, cognitive person, was completely cut off from my body when I first started this practice. Not completely, but very cut off when I first started this practice. It took me three months just to be able to distinguish between a, a feeling and a thought about a feeling, right? Some of you probably were having that problem where you're thinking about the feeling. So what you do, what I had to do is finally just keep dropping into the body again, again, and again, right? We'll do kind of more of a dropping practice next, and that'll help. But just dropping in again and again and again, and then you kind of start to become, over time, when you really dedicate to this practice, you become even excited when you're like, I have no clue what that emotion is, and it's okay. Like, just because we have such a tendency of a need to know, you know? because. In that need to know, because it's pretty much the primary way we're educated to see the world is through the thinking mind. So we have this this very much uh, attachment uh, to um, when we when we can name it, when we can sort of label it, when we understand it intellectually. We're like, oh, okay, done. It's good. You know, I'm cool now. And there's some like ground, right, where we're like, okay, we feel some safety around it. But it's not safe at all because the problem still persists. So it's a really interesting dilemma uh, with that, where the thinking mind is quite useful. We need the thinking mind, but it often really does a disservice in this area because the feeling world is not linear like the thinking mind. And the more we, and again, I'm not saying completely um, uh, psychological models, other Buddhist models of, of understanding emotions and being able to name them and being able to, that, that's all good and well, right? But it's not the only 
tool we need in our tool belt, right, or toolbox. That's my point. And so we tend to be heavy on the cognitive. And so here, this is why this practice, for me personally, was most super transformative because it directly got me out of my cognitive. And I was forced to because there was no other way to, to work with it uh, properly and get the results. Um, there's an analogy I've been thinking of lately where just imagine in your mind being dropped off in a jungle, you know, like by a helicopter, right? And not only are you dropped off in a jungle, but you're blindfolded. And what do you have to do? All you have to do is rely on your feet and the feeling of your feet touching the earth and making sure you're touching something that is uh, not poisonous, right? <laughs> and so, so this practice is very much like that in the beginning. We're just kind of taking one step and another step very slowly, but each step is a, f a step in feeling, not a step in understanding cognitively. So anyways, yeah. and started doing mindfulness and I got lucky enough to fall in with a um, clinical addiction psychologist down in Georgia where I live, but he's Buddhist and he actually teaches this really weird kind of awesome version of psychology, self-psychology where it's, it's blended with secular Buddhist principles. So uh, one of the hardest things for me to learn was, um, uh, I would say it was like more about self-distraction, um, labeling things and generalizations were probably the biggest things for me. Um, and I still deal with those, but you know, just, I feel like we're all so distracted that when you're forced to sit in the room by yourself quiet, it's almost louder than it is if you're actually like, you know, doing stuff around all these other people. Um, that was the hardest thing for me and continues to be is just not having to label something, not having to know exactly what that feeling is and just kind of letting go. Um, like you were talking about the analogy with the muscle, I think that's the perfect analogy. Um, the things we usually cling to are the things that usually kill us. Um, I, I think that, that the essence of my recovery has really been, uh, you know, not having to know every aspect of everything. I have to understand everything before I just allow myself to do it instead of just thinking about it all the time. Um, I also suffer from depression and anxiety and a bunch of other stuff. I've had. 50 labels put on me. Um, and you know, I think a lot of the time we, especially in this country, have a tendency to generalize depression. It's like you feel sad, you feel any way other than, oh, I feel like, you know, skipping over this rainbow and it's, oh, you're depressed, you know, take this pill or do this. <laughs> Instead of just realizing, hey, you know, life is, life is pain. You know, suffering is optional, but life is pain. It's just, it's part of the process. Um, and to me, it's really enriched my recovery because now when I go through those times, it just highlights the times that are much easier and much, that, you know, that I can, I can act more skillfully with, with things. Um, so I just really love that analogy. I, that was awesome. I was actually journaling about exactly what you talked about awesome. today, yeah. yesterday. So I thought, that was, I thought that was great. Awesome. Thanks, man. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. Maybe like one or two more and then we'll practice a little bit more. I, I have a question. Yeah. You we were talking earlier around about uh, identity. Yeah. And uh, I was wondering if you, it got a little lost. I was wondering if you maybe revisit that a little bit. Anything specific like, around it? or? Well, I mean, maybe how it relates or yeah. with compassion or self compassion, you know, in that vein. 
how Buddhism deals with identity. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, in my experience, it's a, very, it's a, it's a problematic thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, sure. Um, I was just laughing because I was like, oh, yeah, that, there's that can of worms just opening up right now. Yeah, um, yeah you, we, we can come back tomorrow all day. No, joking. Um, yeah, so basically, um, yeah, Buddhism fundamentally what it's dealing with is how we relate to, uh, how we relate to identi identity. You know, this, this analogy of the muscle identifying its environment at home as this rope, right? as opposed to the big white ocean. Uh, this is very much, a, I think, a useful analogy for understanding identity. So from a Buddhist perspective, our identity is much more wide open than how we're experiencing it. But our, um, our notion, our, you know, they usually use the term in Tibetan called marikpa or, or misknowing or sometimes ignorance, but I think misknowing is a little bit better. So it's just like a misapprehension. And so here we can see that logically through our life. That, for instance, when we were six years old, just think of that person. Now, I don't remember how I identified at six years old, but I knew I did, I did have some kind of identity, most likely, right? And then that shifted as I was 10, 12 years old. Shifted when I became 16. Identify with new things. Now, again, it's a continuity, so there's a relationship, right? But it shifted again at 16, then again at 20, whatever, right? And, and on and on and on. So if we, if we really look, identity is not some singular thing that we can point our finger on and say, ah, I'm here, I'm this. Yet we experience the sense of that in the moment, right? Like if we turn towards, especially if someone cuts you off on the freeway, some identity is going to show up, right? And usually with the middle finger behind it, maybe, you know, at least in New York. So, uh, so this is essentially one way of understanding the flexibility and fluidity of identity. And so in the Buddhist path, what, the, what meditation leads us through is a, um, not a disassociation or not getting out of yourself because the issue is what is self? So it's questioning very much the nature of what self is. Now, not self as a principle that continues, but self as this feeling of uh, uh, singularity or independence or sort of autonomy from the rest of our environment, right? So in a sense, we could say identity itself is what binds us. Not in, the, not in the play of identity, but in the constriction and cocooning into the identity. And so the, the path really is, uh, awakening itself is to go beyond that. But that doesn't mean you dissociate or suddenly you're, like I said like uh, earlier, it's like uh, we have this identity and then we're like, oh, now I'm a Buddhist and put on these robes and then you're this identity. It's the same thing. It's like it's not really going to help that much. Maybe a little bit. I don't know. I did that. <laughs> it sort of worked a little bit. Helped. Are you touching on the ideas versus beliefs principle? Right now? Yeah. Um, describing with the whole, with, when you're talking about identity. Yeah. Uh, no, I, you could connect it, but not so much. I mean, I wasn't thinking about that. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was more thinking about... Um, I mean, it's a big topic, so, yeah, but, but it's sort of like, yeah, beliefs are another one, because a, a lot of our beliefs are formed around identity, um, and, and those change. Our beliefs often change throughout our life, and we also see that in one way we're nothing but our beliefs, in a way, 
And it's tricky, you know, it, this is definitely a controversial thing to talk about these days because a lot of us like to believe we're free thinkers and we have free will. But that's questionable, right? Because we're led around by our habits all the time, right? So the Buddhist path is about recognizing that habit and connecting with the space, right? That's not a thing, right? It's not another kind of identity, yet appearances still flow. Yet it's not like everything ends and there's no more awesome barbecue that I'm gonna go eat later, right? That still can happen. But there's less clinging, there's less suffering around it, there's less constriction, less cocooning, right? Well, it's a big one, it's a big one. But like I said, you know, in the beginning we can think of it as just what happens in that loosening. Like just now, you know, some of you experienced it. Whether we were just looking at the, just watching the mind and bearing witness to the breath, or bringing this self-compassion to emotions, maybe a little bit of space came, maybe a little bit of just a, a give in that constriction. So that shows us right there, there's the possibility. And so what is that? And in the beginning, it's sort of like the cocooned effect, or what I call the kind of constriction of identity, the constriction of belief, of uh, ideology, of perception, whatever, our whole experience. It's there so strongly that that seems like the reality. But the more we meditate, we see that's not the reality. And that's the point, right? And that goes beyond dogmas, for sure. Goes beyond, that's the essence of what we're talking I mean, what's funny is we practice Buddhism to go beyond Buddhism. So it's a very strange religion, actually, you know? But a lot of people like to say, oh, I don't want to identify as anything. I don't want to, sure, you're welcome to do that. But it's just semantics at the end of the day. Yeah. <laughs> You had something, right? Yeah. Well, I don't mean to beat myself down by saying this is silly, but this might be silly. <laughs> um, usually, when I uh, attend a refuge meeting or um, try to go into a mindful state, I'm, I'm really good at, I don't know if I'm really good at it, I'm pretty new, but, um, you know, I can kind of tap in there and
down my neck, through my arm, stopping right here and like going and down into my finger and out. And then I would try to let go of that and it would go down my leg. Like every nerve was just on fire. And I thought, what, you know, what is that? Is that something that seems really kind of, and when I say this, I mean that kind of sounds, sounds self-centered, well, it's all about me, but something in my body was going, okay, this needs help, and is that just as important as your, you know, emotional? Because when you're blocked, or when I'm blocked by something going ding, 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 like the ball-peen hammer, it's really hard to get any more contemplative or less contemplative as, you know, your philosophy might be, because it's just hammering at my spinal column. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand. Do, you, do people ever discuss that, or is this just whacking out? No, no, it's fine. No, no, <laughs> no, it's good. I think, um, I mean, I think it's obvious physical pain, we obviously need to treat it if we can, right? Uh, with with the... Yeah, I do go in acupuncture massage. That's all good. There's nothing wrong with that, right? But here, uh, what I would say in the in the in the meditation sphere, at least in the beginning, we're more working with the reaction to that pain. So in this particular practice right now, what we're working with is how are you? What is the feeling towards that pain? Not the sensation, the emotion, the mood, the 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 resistance, right? And it's it, and then it's not to say like where you give up and wave a surrender a white flag of like well. I'm never going to get rid of this pain. No, of course, you still go seek out doctors. You seek out relief, whatever you need to do. That's healthy. Um, but at the same time, you can work with, this is a practice, dealing with that, that uh, reaction, right? And so it's the reaction we're, we're trying. Because the reaction is not the physical pain. It's something mental or emotional. Um, eventually, I mean, I don't want to get say too much on this, but, but in the meditative world, it definitely can help pain down the road. But it's, 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 it's pretty advanced. And so what I usually go by is that um, use, use all the medical means we can to help and then work with the emotional pain around that through meditation, right? And then of course, as practice develops, it may affect the pain and help it as well. But I'm not a proponent of using meditation for pain relief. Um, it's yeah. weird. I mean, I do. I, I deal with my emotions all the time, and I have my little kid. But um, this tonight was just weird, and so I was using this visual maybe because you said chocolate or candy. So I was picturing like a chocolate bar melting really slowly. <laughs> yeah. And so like that pain would go away, and then it would pop up over here. Yeah. And I was like, man, what's going on? This guy's gonna be here once in my whole entire life. Please just shut up so I can enjoy him. And that's kind of where I was. Yeah. No, but that's okay. I mean, that's that's the point. Is it's like you know, working with that that resist. It is what it is. Your body's reacting the way it does, and sometimes mindfulness of body practices really help of just being with the pain because you notice it opens up and it shifts. That's helpful, um, but that's a little bit of a. It, it's a different purpose than relieving the pain, even though it might help a little bit. Yeah, it's something. Something. Uh I know initially when I first started practicing, compassion was really kind of tangled up with fixing. Mm. And inevitably because of that, there was an incredible amount of resistance because I wasn't getting what the fuck I wanted. Mm. 
Yeah. And uh, you know, I think for I think for me, I had to learn actually the definition of the linguistics around what that feeling actually was, uh, what that emotion actually is, and I had to do a great deal of practice of equanimity uh, to, to find some balance yeah. in what I did and didn't have control over to get rid of the, the codependency issues and the enmeshments and, and to the, really to the reality. Um, and it just made me, you know, as you were describing that, I know initially when I first started sitting, you know, the smallest thing could drive me insane, you know, and I, and I was told my compassion for it, and you know, yeah. <laughs> to, to take a different route and just look somewhere else and just let it be, you know, or or face it and just let it be instead yeah. of trying to fix it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Brian. Yeah. So maybe we'll practice a little bit more. Is that, is that cool with everyone? <coughs> we only got about six minutes, <laughs> so we'll do it again. So we're going to do a little bit more of a, a vigorous uh, dropping now, okay? So this is meant to, for those of us who are thought ruminators, you know, I don't know, it may just be me in the room, I'm not sure. Uh, if we're vigorous thought ruminators, sometimes we need a little bit of a kind of a unique or strange action to trigger, uh, to kind of cut through the thinking, right? So essentially what we're going to do is we're going to drop and kind of slap our legs and with the, uh, with we're going to say with our, our, our uh, voice, ha, H-A, ha, kind of loudly, right? So ha is a Tibetan syllable, and it, it is a syllable that actually cuts through concept. And so as we do this, simultaneously as we say ha, as we drop, we're going to drop all of our awareness into the body and feel. And right away you may, you may sense some kind of blankness. There might be just like a nothingness or a blankness there. But just stay with that, and then over time, after a few seconds or 30 seconds or whatever, then you'll start to notice the feeling and just be with that, yeah? So this can just be a really skillful thing. You don't have to do it all day long and piss your partner off, but you know, they're like, what are you doing over there? Oh, this weird Tibetan guy came and Tibetan teacher and taught me this weird thing. So it just can be something if you're like having a hard time dropping into the body, this can be an extra method to cut through. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right, so we'll do it together on three. <laughs> Ready? So one, Two, three. Ha! So just drop into the body. Don't try to think about it. Don't try to ruminate or figure out what's going on. Just feel. So we just allow with a sense of awareness, just bearing witness, turning towards. We don't try to produce anything or try to spin a story. If there's no feeling there that you can put a finger on, that's fine. Just wait. Just be with the body. Be with the world of feeling. And these principles, if we can, still apply. So it's not suppressing 
something, attempting not to suppress, attempting not to be completely hijacked into ruminating on it, attempting to not run away and attempting to just be with it without applying an agenda or technique or mechanism to fix. Just resting openly and feeling in the body. What can really help for some of you is maybe just even like a really strong curiosity to not know intellectually what's going on, but to feel. Curiosity to explore that, sort of like exploring a jungle. And that's scary when there's something painful. So just give yourself a lot of room. There's no pushing. We're not trying to re-trigger any trauma here. We're just bearing witness. And if there's not much there at the moment, that's okay too. Just feel the body. Feel its flow. Feel its nature. All the energies, sensations that are moving through it. And instead of labeling bad or good, just try to be open. Over time, as we do this practice, we can eventually move into some healing, as well as a sense of our own inner essence love, a quality of contentment and okayness that's not conditioned, that's not coming from bringing some mechanism or object from the outside to fix or make us happy. It's coming from our own inner, inherent, worth. That's just there. We were born with it. But the bad news is we often have to go through the muck to reconnect with that. So this is very much like that Buddhist analogy of the lotus flower and how it grows out of the mud. It interacts with it. Doesn't avoid it. So seeing clearly and compassion are almost like two sides of one coin. So as we apply compassion in this way, we start to see clearly. And if we're doing a type of Vipassana practice, when we see clearly, compassion will also come out of that. So on the path of practice, we're working with both, what we call skillful means and wisdom, upaya and prajna. Just back and forth. So just before we close out the evening, just giving you another taste of the practice and hopefully you can take it home and it's useful to you. But just before we close, I'm gonna gently move away from this practice and I like to move into a practice of empathetic or taking joy in our effort tonight. So I like to do this at the end of every practice session, at the end of every teaching session. 
What this is is just arousing a sense of gratitude and joy for our own practice, for having made our way here tonight when there was probably other things we could have done or other commitments that we had to say no to. Just taking joy in our effort, no matter how it went for us, the practice was easy or hard, confusing or completely clear, it doesn't matter because we're taking joy in just our effort we're putting in, just showing up. And similarly, just letting that joy start to expand to those around us. Getting to practice in a community is really a privilege and <clears throat> incredibly powerful. Some of you may experience that directly when you go and try to take it home, and it's harder <clears throat> because there is not the support of the community there. So let that gratitude come out as joy for your neighbors around you, just taking joy in their practice and their effort and how they showed up tonight for themselves and others. <clears throat> and then we're going to send all of the positive effort we put into our practice out into the community at large and out into the world. <clears throat> Just sharing and imagining all of our virtue and goodness that we've cultivated tonight, being offered to all those and especially those who really need it. Especially those who are suffering greatly And we can even make the vow or pledge that may, my effort, be beneficial to this person, to this community, to the world. May my own awakening be connected into the co-awakening of all others. When you're ready, feel free to open your eyes, coming back into the room. <clears throat> all right, thank you all so much.